0: I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson.
1: This is the fourth edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers in Technology.
0: Our topic today is ethics in the electronic era, staying out of the briar patch.
1: You know, Jim, technology makes everything easier and faster. It makes it possible to commit malpractice At practically at work speed. We can fail to represent our clients diligently. We can lose our clients' data. We can violate the rules regarding attorney advertising, all in 60 seconds or less. There's so many ways to potentially commit malpractice with technology that it's really impossible to list them all. But let's uh, let's try to make a stab at some of the more common missteps and see if we can give some counsel to our listeners.
0: Well, one of the more common errors is using technology in a way that later seems to be inappropriate or troublesome and using spam email to market your practice falls into that category you know in the early days maybe sending a few emails to people drumming up a little business didn't sound like that bad a proposition but today more and more people literally hate spam it usually has a negative impact and There is now the can-spam law, which could give rise to liability for spamming to create business. So this is a surefire way to generate bad will and perhaps even get your domain name blacklisted where you can't send legitimate emails to people.
1: You know, I won't even do a single one-on-one email to people even though that does not fall within can spam because they regard it as spam so if it's cold and I don't have a relationship I just won't do it because the reaction is so hostile let's move to another tip which is about giving legal advice in your blog which is a very bad thing to do they're just not the place for it and in fact some insurers will refuse to insure you I saw recently that the Chubb Insurance Group actually has a blog policy for law firms and a position statement that they had released. So you want to be very careful to make sure that your insurance company knows you have a blog and that you're covered before you do blog. And then keep it general and informational as opposed to appearing to give advice, which can really get you in hot water.
0: I think that you know spewing out advice over the Internet where anybody can read it is a problematic area, and I appreciate the insurance company's position in that regard. The next issue would be about using illegal software in the law office. I don't personally know that this is as big a problem as it was in the early days of computers, but I do sense that there are still people who buy one copy of a certain type of software and then install it on multiple computers. If you have a single license for an application, it only goes on that computer, and you need to read your license agreement because it may be that it is perfectly legal for you to install it on both your work computer and your laptop as long as you use both computers pretty much exclusively. But be aware that this isn't just an honor system situation anymore.
1: You know, where we've seen this the most, Jim, is with a WinZip, which people will run in, in test mode over and over again. And the other thing we've seen is we've seen people use things that are licensed for personal use, and they'll use it in a commercial setting.
0: I remember one of our utilities last week, Bell Arc was one of those where it's only licensed for personal use and not in a, a commercial setting. And the Business Software Alliance is quite serious about promoting and, and protecting its members' rights. Sharon, you're aware of some uh, big liability claims that have been made by this group.
1: We've had had about six law firms get dinged that we're aware of in this area, and the average settlement price was $80,000 a pop. So you certainly want to stay away from that trap. Another tip that we have is about getting involved with a client via email. And this is kind of tempting because I think a lot of attorneys are tempted to reel the client in by conversing with the client, and I can understand that, but they skirt the line of giving advice and often step over the line. So it really is problematic if the client wants to come into your office, that's fine. If they want to pick up the phone and and go through the contract motions with you, that's great. But you've got to get that retainer agreement in place before you start giving advice or you really are in trouble. And once you've done it electronically in email, that trail lasts forever and it will hang you.
0: It can also be forwarded to other individuals. And so you want to make sure that it's clear that you're the individual is forwarding something that is was confidential attorney-client work product and should not have been forwarded.
1: Absolutely. Another thing that people do that it's hard to believe that they do being attorneys, but we've actually seen this, we saw an attorney get in trouble with the state disciplinary board here in Virginia and decide to create his own defense by falsifying a document, which is a horrifying thought. But a lot of attorneys don't realize exactly what can happen to them. What happened in this case is that the attorney, two days before the hearing, before the disciplinary board, created a letter from the client saying, drop the case, which the attorney... Excuse me. It was a letter from the attorney to the client telling them that they were going to drop the case because of the client's poor health. This letter, of course, was exonerating. The trouble was that the attorney had created the letter and the date was in the metadata. So once the machine was viewed forensically and the metadata retrieved, it was clear that the attorney had constructed his own defense. And surprise, surprise, he's no longer practicing law in Virginia.
0: I think that's one thing that people don't really recognize is that these computers keep voluminous records, and they are available even though in most situations they won't be examined. Another good example along the same line is trust account records. As a person who works for a state bar association and sees how lawyers get in trouble in this area, I know the importance of keeping great trust account records. The interesting thing is, as we move more and more to electronic trust account records and accounting software and this type of thing, changes are tracked. There are A lot of these software packages have it set up where it can be audited, and it's set up within the software to know who made a change for good business reasons. If you find yourself going into your software and making changes to fix things, just be aware that, that will be available to anybody who might examine that forensically later. And so it's better just to be honest and to try to keep your trust account records up as best you can. Now, clearly, Sharon, we're not talking here about correcting mistakes. If you make a mistake, you need to correct it. No problem with that.
1: We one time saw a lawyer who had a real flip-shod trust account and clearly didn't want to tell us the truth. We were auditing his practice for the state bar, and every time he told a lie, he had an eye tick. It was great. So so we, we just kept asking the questions. If the eye ticked, we knew it was a lie. If it didn't tick, he was telling us the truth. But it took a lot to get him back on track. And a lot of that had to do with keeping electronic records. Using QuickBooks as a package was a very good solution for that gentleman, which he was now mandated to do by the state bar as part of his disciplinary measures. Another tip that we have is about PDF. If you're going to send a, a document to a client for signature, so often attorneys will do this in Word format. And of course, the client has the ability to take that document, to revise it, and then sign it and send it to the attorney, who may never realize that the thing has been revised. This is, this is truly a problem out there. So what you really want to do is PDF it, lock it down. If you don't know how to do that, just you know, search on lock in the, in the help section and you'll be fine. But if you have to go back and forth between people for track changes, that's okay. You're in that track changes mode and everybody's changing everything. But when you've got a final at that point, you do want to lock the document down and transmit it as a PDF document.
0: I think that's a great idea. In fact, I will tell you a related concept is that I think that law firms should think about going to a PDF-first policy, and that you only send things out in PDF unless there's a good reason to send an editable document out to clients or others.
1: Interesting idea. I doubt it will be adopted because so many of them are still scared of working with PDF except as a final product.
0: I understand that, but uh, we're supposed to be on the cutting edge here with
1: our <laughs> I'm just wondering how long it will take for your vision to come true. <laughs>
0: Here's another interesting issue with technology. A law firm, a very well-respected law firm in Colorado, was sanctioned by the court for failing to appear at a hearing when a spam filter caught the email notice of the hearing, and they were totally unaware of it. You know, that to me, when I first read it, sounded a lot like excusable neglect. Well, these spam filters are so hard to tinker with, and and it made a lot of sense to me, but the judge was not nearly as forgiving as I would have been, and I don't know that he's not correct. His theory was it's pretty easy to set up your spam filter where all email from the court is what they call whitelisted, which means that the rule in the spam filter is that this email goes through no matter what, no matter what it contains. So I think that's an excellent idea. I posted a blog post about that soon after that opinion became public, Because it makes sense to me that that's your mission-critical email, and so email from important clients and email from courts should always be listed in your spam filters, so it'll be put through no matter what.
1: That's just common sense, it seems to me, as is our next tip about proofreading, which most lawyers clearly do not do, at least with their email. I think they're fairly careful with their formal letters, but there's a large difference between I will consider a $100,000 settlement and I will not consider a $100,000 settlement. And that's just one small example. What I think we see most of the time is lawyers who sound like they never passed the sixth grade, like they couldn't diagram a simple declarative sentence. And it's because they're moving too quickly, they don't have words in the sentence. that They've either omitted them or they've changed and got the wrong word form. Their grammar is not correct. It's just terrible, some of the stuff you see. And you look unprofessional at the very least. And if I were a client, I'd be looking at these emails going, you know, is this what I'm paying all this money for?
0: I appreciate the problem because all of us use email in kind of two different modes. And if I'm just sending you a friendly note, Sharon, I'm not as inclined to proof it as well as if I'm in business correspondence. So I think we need to be careful when we're in the business mode to proof just as carefully as if it was a contract or an official offer or another type of legal correspondence.
1: This is especially true with the voice recognition software. I know a lot of judges have told me anecdotally that they get all of these briefs in all the time and they can tell that they were done with Dragon because they have not been proofed and they can see all the errors and nobody has carefully gone through them and they just think that's really sloppy practice and that's not an impression you want to leave with the judge either.
0: I really like drag and dictate, naturally speaking, and use it a lot in my practice. But I will tell you that it is harder to proof those kinds of errors than your typical typographical error or misspelling. They don't jump out at you off the page. So for important documents that you've dictated, it may make sense to have a third party look it over just to make sure that it reads well to them as well. Here's a classic techno problem that harkens back to the very early days of the Internet, which is people who click on attachments from somebody without knowing what the attachment is or why the person sent it to them. It's kind of amazing to me that people still do this, but we know that they do every day. People seem to think an attachment is somewhat like a Christmas present, and you just can't help but open it. But to me, unless I'm expecting an attachment and get it from somebody I know, the attachment is the most suspicious and most cautious part of my email habits. I will often send somebody an email. Now, I don't reply to this email in case it's been spoofed, but I'll send somebody an email directly and say, hey Sharon, I just got a 10 megabyte attachment from you. I wasn't expecting Did that really come from you? And I don't think that uh, real computer users, they appreciate your caution. I don't think that offends anybody. Oh,
1: I don't either, and I think you need to do it. Another area where you need caution is is where you go on the internet there are so many places that are apparently tempting and many of them are triple x sites and those sites have contract with places that put spyware on your computer or various other kinds of pests that's partially how they make their money so those triple x sites are really to be avoided surprisingly screensaver sites are notorious for that but so are places that have free computer utilities free recipes of Digests of your soap opera favorites, one of those things. Any of those places, if you don't know it, if it's not a reputable site, a reputable company, it's probably not a great place to go. And one of my favorite stories about that is a judge in our uh, general area who had apparently opened something about farm girls and their animals. And he had an endless series of mouse-trapping pop-ups and all sexual, of course, and he could not call his courthouse IT staff. So he called me and said, Sharon, are you my friend? And of course I was his friend and I did take care of his machine for him. But even judges can have this kind of problem. So it's, it's very wise to think about what you're doing on that
0: computer. It's really too bad that that wholesome interest in agriculture led him down that path.
1: <laughs> you would say that, cowboy.
0: <laughs> Here's one that I have a little bit different view than some people, and I think Sharon does too. But uh, autocomplete is a function where you begin to type in an email address, and Outlook, and I assume some other uh, email clients, will fill it in for you. And so it's real easy just to type the first two or three letters, and then it gets filled in and you hit enter. In fact, I do that all the time with my assistant when I send her emails. I know if I type the first three letters for her last name, it will fill in her name, and that's all I have to type. But there's a danger here because it may fill in someone else's name other than your attendant. First of all, you need to be aware that autocomplete is not going and looking in your contacts. I think that's one of the big misunderstandings of autocomplete. And so if somebody has called you or emailed you and given you a new email address, autocomplete is still going to be filling in the old email address secondly you need to be aware of that murphy's law probably applies here more than more than any other technology function i can think about if you're trying to send an email to henry your client about your litigation strategy and it's the worst email to go astray it, that will be the time when you don't remember that the new lawyer on the other side that's just joined the case has a name of henrietta <laughs> and when you start typing that in it automatically goes to them so be very careful When you're dealing with autocomplete, here's my little tip. When you do autocomplete and there's more than one option, it'll drop down a menu with six or seven different names. You can use your arrow to go down amongst those names to select the right one, but more importantly, if there are people that you don't email very often, you can use the arrow key to go down and then hit delete to remove it from that list. So if you're going to use autocomplete, try to do some maintenance to clean it up and only have the people that you use frequently. And many technology experts say you just shouldn't use autocomplete. It's too dangerous.
1: My personal rule is that I look at it afterwards. So I, I choose it but I don't believe it until I look at it again and verify. And that has worked fairly well. But I only adopted that rule after I sent uh, a friend of ours who lectures on the circuit with us. I sent him an angry email wanting my discovery. And of course, he had a name similar to an opposing counsel I was working with, not well, obviously. And he wrote me back and he said, Sharon, I don't think I'm even on a case with you. And that was correct, he was not. Uh, That was a fairly innocent error, but of course it might have been something far worse the next tip is about passwords, and you hear this all the time. I did hear something recently that I thought was a very good idea. Everybody, of course, wants to use their pet's name, their child's name, a name of a sports team, something like that that they can remember. But really, you want both alphabetical characters and numeric characters. And one of the best ways to do that is to create a, a sentence, a phrase that you can remember. And so my best tip that we saw recently on the tech show blog, uh, the ABA tech show blog, was I of Tech Show 2008. That'll work.
0: Well, also, I want to talk a little bit more about email and what we used to call, and some people still do, flame email. It's really easy with email to write in anger and then hit send and have an almost immediate sense of regret. I think we all had the experience in the pre-electronic age, those of us who were dinosaurs in practice back then, of writing the hot email to opposing counsel or dictating it, and then when you get it from the secretary the next day, you kind of tone it down a little bit. <laughs> Unfortunately, with email, you don't have that opportunity. I just had a good opportunity last night. I got in very late. I was off work all day, and my voicemail clearly said that I'm not going to be able to return your phone calls tomorrow, and somebody had e- had left me two phone messages and then sent me an angry email that I hadn't returned their two phone messages, when if they'd just listened to me, my voice message, they would have known that I wasn't going to be around to return them, and there was also an instruction to get a hold of my secretary if they needed to. So it would have been really easy for me, tired, midnight, after a really tough day, to say, What's wrong with you? Don't you listen to the voice messages <laughs> or whatever? But well, instead, I waited till this morning, and this morning I just wrote him a calm little, uh, Well, I was out of the office, and here's the situation.
1: So. As they said on Seinfeld, tranquility now, tranquility now. <laughs> <laughs> Another problem, of course, is, as you mentioned, hitting that send button too quickly. I always tell folks, look, you've got to imagine that whatever you're sending out is going to be on the front page of the New York Times, it's going to be on the billboard going down Route 95, and your mom's going to read it. Now, if it passes all those tests, you go right ahead and hit send. Otherwise, think again.
0: One of the things I see a lot when I go into law offices is the lack of an adequate or appropriate file naming convention and so it makes it sometimes impossible to find a file from a few months or a few years ago or if the loyal assistant of 10 years has left and nobody knows how she named her files it makes it quite the hunt to try to find old files so i think every law firm even the solo practitioner should make a few rules about how we name the files the normal rule will be that it ought to be a long descriptive name, including the client's name and the type of document, perhaps the date, perhaps the author. But you can come up with your own formula. The bottom line is you want everybody in the office trying to name their files somewhat the same way so that when you look at this long list of files, you can scan it and pick it out by name instead of having to open six or eight documents before you find the right one.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Another way in which you can really help yourself is to remember that technology is not the be-all, end-all. It is not fail-proof. In fact, it chooses the most dreadful moments in which to melt down completely. Uh, We had that example with uh, one of our client law firms where they did not have a paper backup of their calendar. They had a full-scale meltdown of their server, and they, so they had no electronic calendar either. And it took, uh, even though, of course, it, these things were under warranty, it still took a full day, day and a half, for them to get back up and running and operational. In the meantime, they didn't know where they were supposed to be. So it's really important. As much as I like to get rid of paper, it's nice if you have a backup copy. Be somewhere. And of course, maybe that's even in your PDA where or your smartphone where you have at least a copy that you can reference, uh, even though your server's gone down. You still have some kind of measure that you can deal with at, at least short term. But that makes people crazy when they don't have a calendar.
0: I totally agree with that. Now, I will tell you that I won't go so far as to think that we need to waste a lot of time rewriting things by hand that are on the calendar. One simple method is just to regularly print out your calendar on eight-and-a-half by eleven paper and to use it in a three-ring binder or whatever is the office calendar. So printing works very well to uh, make a paper copy. So if the entire computer system is down, you still have the paper copy for
1: And that, that works for a lot of our small firms too, Jim. They do that once a week, and I think that's a good system. And that, actually, that's what we do here just in case. The next tip is about, and this is our final tip, is about leaving your computers on at night. And I always Tell people they're crazy. First of all, your computer needs to clean out. It, it cleans itself internally, gets rid of a lot of garbage when you turn it off. The more you keep it on and don't turn it off, the more it will, will misbehave. It's just the way computers work. So turn it off, turn it on in the morning. But if you leave it on at night, do you know every member of the cleaning crew? I, I seriously doubt it. Have they had back, good background checks? Frequently not, but even if it isn't that, and here was one case that was just absolutely wonderful, we had some robbers who broke into an entertainment complex in Colorado and they couldn't open the safe even though they had the code because it was an inside job. Thoroughly perplexed, they looked around and they found a computer that was on and they googled information about the safe and moments later they had the safe open and they left with $12,000. So. Uh, leaving, leaving your computer on at night is helpful to all the wrong sort of folks. It does your computer good to go to sleep. Let it, let it go down and don't leave it open for people to do bad things with your data.
0: Unfortunately, Sharon, there are some law firms and some big business operations who are leaving the computer on at night is a part of corporate policy. So the IT department may apply updates at night. There may be this type of situation. I still don't like it, but it can be a corporate policy. And then there's another situation where a lawyer has remote access set up and wants to be able to remote into the computer, and so you have to leave it on to accomplish that. So there is a balancing test here. There's a couple of things I'd like to add. One of them is if you will make a habit, every time you stand up and leave your computer, if you'll hit the Windows key and hold it down quickly followed by the L key, it will lock your computer up and nobody can get in it without knowing your password. And so if you make a habit of doing that, even during the day, it's a good thing for confidentiality and privacy. And then if you find yourself leaving without turning off the computer accidentally, you've handled that. Another situation is that you should probably have, if you're going to leave the computer on at night, a password-protected screensaver so that the screensaver will automatically come up and, again, lock people out of the computer until somebody types in the password. So I still think it's a bad idea, but at least those are some ways to make doing a bad thing a little bit safer. You know,
1: those were, I think, 18 tips, and I think we had over 25 more, Uh, so maybe another time, Jim. (laughs) In the meantime, that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us.
0: Goodbye, Ms. Sharon.
1: Happy trails, cowboy.